Hello, and welcome to the Good Mood Podcast. My name is Dr. Talia Marcajani, and this is episode 48, Peaceful Periods, PCOS, and Why Ovulation is Good for Your Mood, with Dr. Anne Hussein, naturopathic doctor. So Dr. Anne is back on the Good Mood Podcast. She was on about a year ago when I first started this pod, back in May of 2020. And she's back to talk peaceful periods, PCOS, and why you should ovulate if you can, because it's good for your mood, not just for fertility. In this pod episode, we talk about the menstrual cycle, how our hormones impact our mood, problems with oral contraceptives, and why ovulation is not just important for fertility, but it's also important for building progesterone in your body, and this can vastly impact your mood and overall health. Dr. Ann struggled with PCOS, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and a genetic anemia called thalassemia. And through her research, she got to work on regulating her periods and now helps other menstruators do the same. She follows a plant-based lifestyle and abides by the following principles, which I like so much I swiped from her website and I'll read out now. So she believes that our healthcare system is failing too many people. Women are more prone than men to being dismissed and disregarded, and this is even more pronounced in the BIPOC and non-heteronormative population. Male models are applied to women all the time, but women are not little men. Trans people have all their health concerns blamed on their hormone therapy, and we all deserve access to healthcare that supports us. Your healthcare should be a discussion, and your care plan should be one that takes you, your history, and your lifestyle into account. Most importantly, synthetic hormones are not the only option when it comes to menstrual and hormonal health concerns. Medication is one of many options. There's a time and place for medication. Medication is often overused for multifactorial conditions like acne, painful periods, PMS, and mood swings. And Anne and I discuss um, you know, ovulation oral contraceptives and how there's this fallacy in that oral contraceptives are prescribed to, quote, regulate your period, unquote, whereas what they're actually doing is preventing ovulation and creating a pill withdrawal bleed every 28, 21 days or whatever it is. It's not regulating your period. There may be a time and place for it, but to say that it's prescribed to regulate someone's period is not true informed consent. And Dr. Ann and I agree with that. Our cultural, our culture of perpetual productivity is running us into the ground and we must learn to lean into our body's natural cyclical rhythms of ebb and flow to fully show up. We also need to create and find more moments of peace, joy, and pleasure in life. I really love this, but Dr. Ann's philosophy, this is something that she works with in her program, Periodicity, where she helps remind, you know, menstruating people that the, the, you know, there are certain strengths and and perhaps weaknesses at certain times of our cycle and if we're aware of what to expect during each week of our menstrual phase we can align our activities for the most motivation energy mood and productivity everything in our bodies is connected nothing works in isolation as such the food we eat the thoughts we think the people we spend time with the information we consume our financial situations the way we move and the products we use on our body all play a role in our health and your healthcare plan should address all these areas bang on in i totally agree <laughs> when we support our health and well-being only then can we fully show up for ourselves our dreams and goals and the people who matter most we need all kinds of people in all kinds of roles in the world 
Anne is a graduate of the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, an ND and a naturopathic doula. She also volunteers with Naturopaths Without Borders. If you struggle with hormonal issues like irregular periods, mood-related fluctuations throughout your cycle, heavy bleeding, or are just curious about how your hormones can send your mood on a roller coaster or contribute to a smooth joy ride throughout the month, take a listen. Hi, welcome back. <laughs> so, so you've been like one of the OGs on this podcast. <laughs> before it was a podcast when it was just uh I guess Facebook lives or just whatever we were doing yeah beginning of the pandemic probably like a year ago yeah and yeah it's been a year (laughs) and yeah and I'm happy to be back yeah and then we'll do it better I mean there's definitely listening back I'm like there's definitely ways I could have definitely improved our interview (laughs) so we'll see if those improvements show through and so people can listen to the other one. We did, it was like a back to back. It was like I interviewed you, and you interviewed me, and it was and I think I talked for most of both of them. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's what podcasts are all about. They're about talking. That's true. Someone has to talk. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk. Okay. So can you say a little bit about your practice and your passion? It has to do with periods. Practice passion and periods. Yes. Yes. You nailed that on. The um, yeah. So my practice is based out of Ontario, some, you know, same as you. Um, and I focus a lot on periods, PMS, PCOS, um, and anything like hormone related, basically fertility included. Um, I'm personally also plant-based. So I do have a lot of patients that are plant-based looking for, you know, that kind of support, uh, whether it be for hormones or not. Um, yeah. And then, um, my life recently, I feel like it revolves around periods, like personally, obviously, but also, um, I have an online program, um, that's called periodicity. It's for, you know, to help people have peaceful periods, laying down the foundations for a healthy cycle and leaning into our cycles. And then I'm also currently writing a book on periods. (laughs) So (laughs) lots of period talk in my brain on my computer, like everywhere. (laughs) Is your book called period end of sentence? (laughs) No, although that would be a good one. read no further that's it (laughs) um yeah periodicity is a great name though I really liked it yeah thank you and then yeah you actually look a lot of really good alliteration like it was like flourish and nourish and what were the so yeah actually yeah yeah so the four pillars of my program are um explore restore nourish and flourish yeah I I like wordplay I honestly I feel like sometimes I'm not creative enough in that regard but I do I do like some nice alliteration some rhyming (laughs) yeah it's and it's like I know it's hard when it doesn't fit like I'm it's hard enough to make things fit into like four weeks or six weeks or something but then to get the names because you're like oh I want to talk about nutrition okay nourish that's good floor yeah you're like how do I I want to talk about self-care. I want to talk about movement. How do I get everything to sound, <laughs> to sound alliter- alliterated, alliterate? <laughs> yeah. Or rhyme. Yeah. No, it's good. You did good with that. And can you tell us about what a peaceful period is? Like, how would you, obviously there's a range in, in individuality and what someone might experience, but what would be a typical 
peaceful period? Because I'm guessing a lot of people are told that their period is peaceful and they don't feel like it is at all. And, and then that sort of um, normalized, you know, which, nor- which normally would be a positive thing to normalize a variety of symptoms and experiences. But I think, you know, it's, it's normalized because it's common, but not necessarily optimal or normal, you know? So what would a peaceful period look like? Yeah. So a peaceful period um, looks like you said, it looks a little bit different for different people based on what their cycle length is like. So if we're talking about cycle length from day one of your period to the day before your next period, somewhere around, we like to see around, you know, 24 to 34 ish day, somewhere in that range, it should be consistent for you. So like, for example, yours could be 28 on the nose, which is like the typical sort of cycle length we see, or the average cycle length we see mine personally is closer to 31, 32 days. Um, That's when it comes. And there was a time where there were super irregular like I wouldn't get my period for for months on end and that was because of uh, PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome so going back to your question around like what a healthy period looks like we'll go through physiology and what that manifests us together so your hormones drop and that's when your uterine lining is shed and when your uterine uterine lining is being shed that's your period or day one of your cycle that's day one of your period and at that t- point in time, you know, you're losing blood, you're, you may have some cramping or discomfort. Cramping typically is not really like, it's common, but it's not normal per se. I, I feel like there should be, a, we should use a different um, word than normal, because I don't want to say it's abnormal, but it's not optimal mm-hmm. uh, or ideal. Um, but discomfort can be right, because things are happening. So you may feel it and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, energy levels may may dip a little bit because of the hormonal drop. Um, but also if especially if you're someone who is a little bit iron deficient, for example, it might drop um, because of that as well, because you're losing blood, and then your body has to replenish its stores. So yeah, a little bit of fatigue, a little bit of even like looser stools on that day it can be normal because of all the inflammatory cytokines that are being released in the uh, in the uterus. And then flow should last, you know, anywhere from three to seven days. That's on average. Um, and then you, we want to be losing, you know less than 60-ish milliliters. If you're having more than 80 milliliters of blood loss, um, to give you an idea, like if you're using a cup, you know how many milliliters you're losing. If you're using a pad, like a regular pad holds approximately, and a regular tampon holds approximately five milliliters of blood. So that's how we gauge. Um, And that's fully saturated. So uh, if you're using losing over 80 milliliters of blood, you're classified as a heavy menstrual bleeder. So Um, Which is super interesting because like, for me, like even 30 milliliters of blood is heavy menstrual bleeding because I don't lose a lot of blood personally Uh, on my period. I lose closer to, you know, around 15 to 20 milliliters of blood. Um, And that's always been the case for me. So for me to be losing like 30 milliliters of blood, that would be like alarming for me. So it also has to be, uh, everything always has to be taken for you, like as an individual. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, as we move into like day three to four of our cycles, um, that's when estrogen starts to rise. And that's usually when we feel pretty good. That's how most menstruators want to be feeling like they feel on day three to, you know, 10 ish, like in that time frame. Um, we're always striving <laughs> as people to be feeling like that. But the honest truth is that our hormones fluctuate and it's kind of impossible to feel like that day in and day out there. There will be slight deviations from that baseline um, at most 
for most of us. Um, so yeah, as we go through, go towards ovulation, which happens around in the middle of the cycle, it, again, it depends on your cycle length. So again, like if you have a 28 day cycle, you might be ovulating on day 12 or 14. I have a 31 day cycle. I might be ovulating closer to day 16, 17, mm-hmm. right? Like it, it, it varies. We kind of can retrospectively tell when we ovulated a little bit better uh, from the day of our period. Um, And obviously, then we also have signs like fertile cervical mucus. So our cervical mucus um, starts to increase as our estrogen starts to increase. And then um, as we approach ovulation, it gets a little bit more of that egg whitey texture where you can take it in your hands and kind of like stretch it apart and it's stringy between your fingers. Um, And then when you ovulate, ovulation takes a short period of time. It happens within the span of a day. And then the egg doesn't last very long once, once it has been ovulated. So if there's sperm around, um, you might, you know, conceive, uh, you might get uh, fertilized. And then, um, if there's no sperm around, or even sometimes if there is sperm around, it might not get fertilized. And then your, the follicle shell that contained your egg, that's now becomes your corpus luteum. It deteriorates and now starts to produce progesterone. So if you're on like the pill, for example, and your ovulation is being suppressed, you're not going to make that progesterone. So the only way to make progesterone, apart from like a little bit from your adrenal glands, but on that more like macro level will be um, that you need to have to ovulate. And then um, your estrogen and progesterone both rise after ovulation. And then eventually when your body's like, oh, conception didn't happen, uh, let's get prepared to shed the lining. And that's when usually we have our, you know, symptoms like fluid retention, increase in appetite, um, maybe a little bit of anxiety depending on your hormone level. So what we want to be seeing is like maybe like mild changes. So like maybe a little bit of water retention, maybe a little bit of um, mood changes and it usually looks like less tolerance for crap, right? <laughs> like, that's what it usually looks like for most of us. And yeah. then um, and then maybe like our appetites increase. And our appetites increasing is actually a very normal sign. Um, we have a higher need for, um, for nutrients because our metabolism goes up. So it's a very natural response, but we try to fight against it, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, at the same time, we might have a slightly slug, more sluggish um, digestive system. And, and that's because, again, like of the hormonal changes, actually, like progesterone plays a role in that for sure. And then, um, and then you know, usually our period comes and then <laughs> here we are on the end. But some of the things that we do see commonly that are not really ideal or normal are like extremely erratic mood changes beforehand you're getting like significant insomnia beforehand you're bloating to the point where you look you know like six months pregnant um like those sorts of symptoms are not normal neither is like like we mentioned at the beginning um really significant blood loss like a high amount of blood loss and a high amount of cramping and pain and stuff like that yeah stuff that interferes with functioning i think is a good rule of thumb maybe stuff that's really different from your norm if you you know like you said, mm-hmm. like, you, you know, you can have a 33 day cycle, you can have a 25 day cycle, both those are normal, but if it's flipping back and forth kind of significantly, it might not be for you. Like if, you know, cause there is a exactly pattern that usually emerges. Yeah. Yeah. So within a couple of days, so like if your cycle is 28 days, like 27 to 29 days, like that's kind of where it should fall month by month. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, for me, it's usually between 31, 32, or 33 days. Like that's usually where it falls, but most of the time it's on day 31. Right. Yeah. 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 And then what about the, the PMS phase? So sometimes I work with patients who 
two weeks before their period comes, they're experiencing significant personality changes and mood changes. And some it's a week before. I think that's sort of a typical middle ground for suffering. <laughs> I'm not gonna say normal. And then and then there's I think the more typical normal range is like a couple days before people look back at their calendar and say, oh, that's why I was really annoyed at everybody and wanted everyone gone and to be by myself on a desert island for a day and was bloated. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So hormones are so interesting, right? And like, and, and just to be clear, we don't fully understand the extent of the interactions that are involved with hormones, which is why we continue to do more research. And traditionally there hasn't even been that much research in menstruating populations anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And research studies are short, which means that we're not following people for like three, four months, which is really what we need to, in order to establish patterns, right? Like we can all have like one-offs every now and again. And I would argue in the middle of this pandemic, like more than one-offs, right? Like we've had multiple periods and cycles that have been wonky. I've definitely had a few more than usual delayed cycles throughout this pandemic. Mm -hmm. So Um, after ovulation is, like I said, when we release progesterone. So sometimes it's a combination of the estrogen and progesterone, or sometimes it's the relationship between estrogen and progesterone or how, what the levels are in relation to one another that are impacting us. And if we look at, um, research done in the second half of the cycle, like someone can like 10 people can have sort of like the similar hormone levels, but their sensitivity to those hormones is very different. And we don't, have like a lot of clarity around why, but we can sort of make some presumptions and inferences based on other research we know. So like trauma in early life, um, high amounts of stress, genetic factors, nutrition status, like all of these things do play a role and they play a role in each of us a little bit differently. So it's not like a clear cut answer that I can give you. We know that in people who have PMDD or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, the progesterone actually does play a significant role in the manifestation of those really significant um, symptoms from, you know, from really feeling really depressed, from really losing it on people and feeling a little bit manic sometimes and even suicidal, right? Like there's, there's a lot going on in there that's happening more at the neurotransmitter level in the brain. And even that we don't like completely understand it, but we're starting to understand it a little bit better. Um, So, so yeah, Mike, I don't really have a clear answer for you, like why it happens, but we do know that there's different sensitivities in different people. And we really want to be supporting those people on a case by case basis. Um, But like some general things do apply, like stress management, self-care, obviously seeking out support, um, usually like professional support, especially if they're really debilitating symptoms and they're long, like happening for two weeks, like two weeks of your month, like that's like half a year that you're spending in a very, in a state that's really impacting your quality of life and what you can do in your relationships and all that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's lots of ways that we can manage it, but, uh, but like I said, it has to be, sometimes it's, it's truly a little bit of a trial and error to figure out what works for that person. Totally. Yeah. Because it, like you said, it's not, um, I mean, there's also different kinds of uh, PMS and how it might manifest. And then we don't have this one, sort of root cause that we can identify, whether it's like a hormone level or one hormone in particular that's to blame. And actually, Jordan Robertson, um, when I talked to her on the podcast, said she framed it really in in a way that I never thought of before, in that in the first half of the cycle, 
we're actually, the estrogen levels that we're experiencing actually make us more resilient. So our baseline is our PMS time. <laughs> and then the, the time when we feel the best is actually this added like superpower. That's super, it's like, a you know, a special nootropic supplement that our body just makes for us that helps us deal with our stressed out life a little bit better. And I've never thought of it that way, right? Because we typically think like, well, the real me is the one on week two of my cycle where I'm ready and I have great pheromones and everything's awesome. My skin's good and everything. And then as soon as I finish ovulating, then this monster emerges, but that's actually maybe the the way that you feel before your period is a little bit more indicative of the stress, the effect of stress on you um, or some underlying issue that you're experiencing or something that we have to identify. So I never thought of it that yeah. way, but yeah. It's a great way to frame it, right? Like, and going back to, uh, to what she mentioned um, or what you're saying she mentioned is that we create this, our, our baseline is PMS. So like we feel a lot better. And then when we reach that premenstrual phase, our baseline is the follicular phase. And then we feel really crummy in relation to that. Right. Mm -hmm. right. And then not just that, like we, we tend to, when we feel we feel better. We're like, Oh my gosh, we're going to do all the things now. And we're going to deplete our stores. We're going to run ourselves to the ground basically. Mm -hmm. And then we set ourselves for a poorer premenstrual phase, which, so it kind of becomes this, um, this vicious cycle that we end up caught up in, right? Like we feel a little bit better. So we do a lot more instead of pacing ourselves. So mm -hmm. then our premenstrual phase is a little bit worse. And then we might actually do more things that make the premenstrual phase worse, like over caffeinate over, I still mm -hmm. don't know what the word is to drink more, but like I always say over alcoholize. And and all of those sorts of things. Yeah. And maybe like try to push ourselves through that, like maybe extra fatigue that we might be feeling because we have depleted our stores and our hormones have changed. So mm -hmm. it, it all sort of like becomes this uh, really interconnected um, mm -hmm. ball of, you know, uh, hormones like tangle of hormones that uh, become hard to separate and then they're like feeding into one another yeah like we focus a lot on estrogen progesterone but and that's already complicated enough because there's how they get produced how they get converted how they get metabolized how they uh, interact with our cells like the sensitivity that you talked about how they get broken down and then how they interact with each other and that's just two of them in a pool on their own without the influence of all of our other hormones. Like I think when people think when I say hormone and, you know, a lot of people think I'm just talking about estrogen progesterone, like period hormones. But when I say hormones, I'm talking about insulin and cortisol, thyroid hormones. So this is like a whole system that we might not necessarily connect. Like I think a lot of people think of like hormone replacement therapy or, you know, estrogen maybe is the first thing that comes to mind. But Hormones are everything. It's it's how our cells and our brain and our different organs communicate with each other and how our genes get turned on and off. And they all talk to each other. And, you know, nobody can kind of like shrink down, put a little scuba suit on, and then just like film it all <laughs> happening. <laughs> and we have to kind of just measure stuff and guess what's all going on. <laughs> it's not not usually how we do science so it's really hard like we usually do like cause and effect if you deplete progesterone what happens you know but that's not exactly how the body works because the body can compensate for depleted progesterone or maybe it's another hormone you know so and yeah. Then, yeah it's so true and then if we 
And then on top of that, for like, especially for menstrual cycle concerns, they are so individual, right? Like, like I said before, we could have the same hormone levels, but have completely different experiences. And there's no, and in science, like, we don't like that, right? Like, we don't like that because that, that means like, what is going on? What's the underlying problem? But the fact of the matter is like our body doesn't work in nice, beautiful compartments. There is so much crosstalk. And like you said, mm-hmm. we can't just like put on a scuba suit and, <laughs> and look at individual processes and disregard everything else and like have tunnel vision around that. Mm-hmm. So, and historically, even if we look at research, um, a lot of when doctors have or physicians have been um, surveyed and this is like PMS and PMDD research specifically, they said that the experience of the person is not as important, which is completely not true. Like the experience of the person is truly very important and we can't really take their blood work without that experience. Mm -hmm. So now we have more research and now we definitely have more guidelines even put out by the world health organizations and national organizations that are especially for like menstrual research and menstrual guidelines that are saying that we need to be taking into account the patient's experience which is which is you know leaps and bounds from where we were like even 15 years ago yeah that's funny that the patient's experience isn't important it seems like such a totally different paradigm right because i i don't want to like uh, toot the horn of naturopathic medicine, but we're like, that's most of where we spend our, we linger in the, you know, so long visits. And so we're trying to really understand the experience, which not everyone's used to. Sometimes I, you know, patients are like, I don't know. Oh, oh yeah. I, I haven't thought of it, but I would say the majority are really excited to tell their story and to have their experience listened to. Um, especially when PMS has been particularly intense throughout someone's life and, you know, and it's not just sort of um, almost sexistly invalidated, like, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're yeah. doing a look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like imagine, like imagine that, you know, historically men menstruated, mm-hmm. right? Like, and, and I'm not talking about uh, um, like trans men, for example, mm-hmm. but like, if, if men were menstruating, then our research probably would look different, right? Like we can, mm-hmm. we can make presumptions. Like, I don't think it's an assumption. I think it's a presumption yeah. um, that um, we, that we would have more robust research and more robust like tools around um, how and guidelines even around how to do that. And thankfully, you know, with everything um, changing in the last 10 years, I would say, especially, but more so in the last five years, um, with, you know, a lot more open conversations and and also call outs um, around the disparity that exists in medical literature and scientific literature. I, I am really looking forward to seeing, um, you know, all the research that's going to come out on really diversified populations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And looking at through like a hormonal lens, maybe and yeah, and experiential lens as well. First, yeah. Would do you still test in your practice test hormone levels like I do I do serum on day 21 sometimes to just get a snapshot and I hope I'm communicating it to patients that it's not like you're going to be abnormal or we're looking for because people are told different things like the ranges are very large for the like for the hormone levels right like estradiol and the luteal phase is like from 77 to 1400 and something I don't know if it's nanomoles or picomoles, whatever. 
We have yes, the unit animals is. per liter. Yeah. Animals, right? Yeah. So it's massive. So, you know, somebody is within range could, if they're, if their levels are 80 or if their levels are a thousand. And so I'm not expecting necessarily someone to be out of range, although that can definitely happen for s- certain reasons, but I sort of, and I know that the hormone levels, you know, so people are told like, well, your hormones change throughout the month. So there's no point in testing. And yes, but there are predicted, um, there's a predictive, there's a pattern that we predict throughout the cycle. And so by testing, we're sort of predicting a certain snapshot. And I sometimes use that as just a way to understand how the symptom pattern in someone may be reflective in their absolute levels in that day. Um, It's not perfect. And I'm often really surprised. And I wonder if the surprise is because those levels are not important or if it's just that the symptoms could be a result of a totally different combination of hormone levels in in their body. Um, Yeah, I'm looking at, so when I'm doing that, I'm looking at um, LH and FSH. I'm looking at estradiol and progesterone and how they might be related and at certain levels of progesterone. And I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at free testosterone and, and, and total testosterone and DHEAS and life labs also test morning cortisol. So I take a look at that, although it's not super accurate if it's not done right when someone wakes up. Um, but I'm just wondering about your thoughts, like in your practice these days, and I know this might change, but yeah, like, and people do like Dutch test and, uh, salivary testing. And there's like different things that people have heard of, which obviously have a higher price point, but yeah. Like what have you found the use in testing in these days? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mostly do serum testing. I feel like it's accurate. It gives us the information that we want. Obviously we have to take it with a grain of salt, like you mentioned. And we also have, always have to relate it back to who's sitting in front of us. Yes. So I personally have a huge PCOS practice. So polycystic ovarian syndrome. So we're testing like those androgens, like your DHEAs and um, testosterone levels and prolactin as well. And then FSH and LH, the ratio. Mm-hmm. And typically like FSH and LH, we want to do earlier on in the cycle because because mm-hmm. that's what tells us whether, you know, th- that ratio is, is, is good or not. Like in PCOS, oftentimes what we see is a higher luteinizing hormone ratio versus a follicle stimulating hormone ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, level, not ratio. The ratio is them together. But, um, and that, you know, arrests your follicles in an immature state. So they can't really progress to ovulation. So like that becomes important, especially in those cases, if we're, if we're suspecting anovulatory cycles, that's a good one to test. And then the day 21, and again, the day doesn't necessarily mean it has to be day 21, right? Like, again, it depends on your cycle. We're measuring it somewhere seven days before your next period. So, um, progesterone does give us an idea if someone has ovulated or not at the very, at the very least it's telling us that, right? Like if, if someone ovulated or not, and then if we add an estradiol to that, we can sort of relate the, the relative numbers of the estradiol and progesterone back to their symptoms and see like, okay, well, their estrogens, like estradiol is in the thousands and their progesterone, you know, is mm-hmm. like 50. Mm-hmm. Um, so perhaps those, those symptoms that they're feeling of like really high anxiety and stuff like that, maybe it's, because like 
there's either progesterone's dropping off really quickly or whatever the case may be, right? Like we can sort of start to piece things together. Like you said, it's sometimes it's, it's a little bit messy and it's not completely accurate, but like we do the best we can with the information and the research that we have currently. Um, Hopefully we'll have more clarity in the future, right? Like that's kind of the, uh, why we continue to do research by we, I mean like the great scientists doing research out there. Um, and, And also like from our experience, what we, see over time and and how we can sort of sort of work with that mm-hmm. yeah yeah okay I'm I feel better now because I'm like still doing the same thing because I, I do look address this thing that I <laughs> have a funny story but of a patient who's very near and dear to my heart and um and she asked for hormones from her doctor and her doctor's like no no you, you don't need her. your hormones are normal and she was like no because I I went to my naturopath and we tested a couple of years back and I had estrogen dominance and, <laughs> and she's like, and my doctor yelled at me. <laughs> and I was like laughing. I'm like, yeah. Cause it, it sounds like you just sprinkle fairy dust on yourself. If you say that to the wrong people, but I use that sometimes in the way I might use adrenal fatigue um, because it's like conveys this, a concept that might be that, that, that helps contextualize maybe what someone's experience is in relation to their hormones, because hormones can be a very vague, abstract thing. And so this idea that our, our progesterone is either not uh, balancing our estrogen because it might be too low or the estrogen is too high and overpowering progesterone and how this may, you know, be caused by conditions where there's not, where there's no ovulation or, um, you know, be the result or be causing certain conditions, like certain symptoms that people experience, like, you know, some of the anxiety, some of the PMS, some of the heavier periods, more, maybe more painful periods, et cetera, and linked to certain conditions. So, yeah, <laughs> I don't know if you work with estrogen dominance as a frame of, <laughs> as a frame with patients, but yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever used the term estrogen yeah. st- estrogen dominance personally, mm-hmm. um, and that's simply because it's, it, mm-hmm. I, I see why you use it, right? Like, and I, and it makes total sense when you say it like that, right? Like, and sometimes patients will come in and say, "I have estrogen dominance," mm-hmm. um, and and that's fine too. Like, our job ultimately is to kind of explain and teach, like what what's happening, and we're always talking about hormones in relation to one another, anyway. Right. So I think it's a fine t- frame to use. I, th- I just think it's like thrown around too often, right. Similar mm-hmm. to like adrenal fatigue. Right. And when you talk with um, like in conventional medicine, like they're really highly frowned upon, which I think that's part of the reason why I sort of like mm-hmm. um, don't use those terms because I don't want patients using those terms with their medical. Right. To get yelled at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. also like from a conventional standpoint, right. Like they have, they have certain guidelines and algorithms to follow and they, they're going to use their clinical judgment and and sometimes um or most of the time when they don't have a solution or a strategy that will uh, be impacted by those tests they don't really want to run them because they're like what am I going to do with this information? Right. You know what I mean? And and clinically like I ask myself that question a lot too like Mm -hmm. what is this test 
Mm-hmm. What is what information will this test give me and how is this going to change your treatment plan? There's th- things that we still want to test, right? Like mm-hmm. if someone has, um, let's say, cystic acne, I'm still going to test their hormone levels. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like to figure out, I'm like, okay, are, is this coming from like high androgen levels? So yes, like mm-hmm. testing that testosterone actually will, or DHEA will give us some answers so we can work on those pathways. Mm-hmm. And if they're normal, then we're like, okay, well, where is this coming from, right? Then we, then we figure out where else we need to go. Like sometimes it's a basic like rule in rule out sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, testing is very interesting. I think like it's also highly contested in so many different spheres. Yeah. yeah, But I don't, I typically just go with serum uh, Mm -hmm. for uh, like cortisol would be one that you can do like urinary, for example, right. Or salivary just because like, it's hard to take someone's blood right when they wake up in the morning. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Or so, four times throughout the day kind of thing. Like, yeah, probably. exactly. So like those sorts of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, blood work. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Work. And I agree. It's yeah. I think, yeah, we're going to order tests if it's going to influence our plan. And sometimes we are addressing the issue at the level of the labs. Like you said, like if I, if you have cystic acne and you have high testosterone, that gives us a lot of ideas in terms of choosing herbs and supplements and dietary plans and lifestyle stuff. Um, versus, you know, if you were a conventional practitioner, you might in your toolkit, not necessarily need to know if it was testosterone. It might be helpful, but you, the thing that you want to go with first, or that might be most appropriate for the patient may not matter if they have elevated androgens. So why test, right? So that's, yeah. yeah. Whereas with us and sometimes with us, it's the same. Like I might still want to do, um, I don't know, uh, you know, work with the liver first and it doesn't necessarily matter which hormones elevated, but you know, or maybe the patient is on a budget and doesn't or can't pay for testing. So it's helpful to just, yeah, frame it. Also, I also think of it as like, if another practitioner, um, told me to order, labs base for them, I probably wouldn't like it so much. So I definitely don't expect medical doctors to order labs for my patients, but, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah like, and sometimes we, we do run labs for more information, right? Like <clears throat> if, if someone again came in with cystic acne, maybe we also run inflammatory markers, especially considering like their other symptoms, like maybe mm-hmm. we suspect fatty liver because their liver enzymes are kind of like borderline or something like that. I don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it really depends case by case. So like there are times where we run things that may not immediately mm-hmm. impact our treatment plan, but give us information and insight yeah. into physiology as well. Um, right. Like it's kind of like the screening pain, tests or, that we do. Right. Yeah, so, totally. Yeah. Like, yeah, we can talk about blood work a lot. I feel. Yeah, totally. Like yeah. I was just going to say like a good, a good cholesterol panel. You can just like massage the juices out of that for a while <laughs> <laughs> for like for hormone health, but uh, nutritional health and everything. Um, can we talk about, so you mentioned throughout, um, COVID, you know, the, the increased stress, you notice delayed cycles in, in yourself. So what was that relationship between stress and delayed cycles? Just if you could break that down for us, because I'm sure a lot of people notice that and get kind of yeah. freaked out if their cycles randomly longer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So obviously it can be you know, disconcerting if your cycles are getting longer. Um, I know that's my pattern. Anytime I travel where there's a time change, like um, I volunteer with naturopaths 
without borders in Thailand. So every time I travel, I know my period is going to be late. That's just like fact now for my life. Yeah. Um, every time I go back to visit like relatives in Pakistan, my, uh, my cycle will be late. Um, and then high stress period times like I, I kind of expect it to be like a little bit late also it's because like our body especially like our brain is always putting out sensors into your system looking for nutrient availability looking for like other like hormonal things that are happening and when our bodies are under stress whether that be like physiological stress or mental emotional stress and usually it's like the two combined right mm-hmm. um reproduction is just not a priority right like it needs to divert its energy into doing other things that's how I put it sort of in layman's terms like its priority Mm -hmm. is to just survive like to keep you going so when we're under stress our sleep might be off which will start a cascade of hormonal dysregulation right we we know this as you mentioned when we're talking you and I are talking about hormones we're not just talking about sex hormones we're talking about the cortisol we're talking about the insulin we're talking about like leptin and like all those other hormones that um, are less commonly discussed or not like sex hormones yeah Right. We don't so, think of so, like hormones in the same way that we would think. Exactly. Of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially when we're talking, like we're doing an episode like on, on menstruation. Right. So, yeah, exactly. um, but yeah, when we're talking about hormones, we're talking about all those messengers, like different kinds of messengers. So then the, there's this cascade that starts. Our thyroid function might be disrupted, which will also then go back down and, uh, and interrupt our um, sex hormone release. Um, we might be eating differently. We might be overeating, which will cause more insulin and, you know, cortisol to be released um, or you know depending on what's happening in your body I'm just going to leave it at that Um, we might be under eating in which case again like your body's like oh not enough nutrients this is we're just gonna do other things and keep you going Mm -hmm. you know what I mean so like there's always this balance going on and there's always these checks going on in your body um, that allow us to actually that keep our menstrual cycles regular Mm -hmm. and when there's stressors involved and everyone's resilience is a little bit different everyone's bodies are a little bit different everyone's genetics are a little bit different I'm definitely really susceptible to that personally you may not be right like you probably uh, not probably like you could be someone who can you know endure what like I endure Mm -hmm. and then your cycles will be completely fine and right like clockwork Mm -hmm. because we have different systems we have different bodies Mm -hmm. um so so that's sort of what happens when we're experiencing stress and that's what's been happening in this pandemic right like there's stress at like pretty much every level of the body for many of us for some of us not so much for some of us like weight like Mm -hmm. a lot and most of us like somewhere in in between like for personal security for our Mm -hmm. health for the condition of the world world for you know co- uh, corporations making tons of money off the small people you know what I mean like there's so much to consider yeah what's gonna um, be in the world if all the small businesses close etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah yeah less um less activity maybe less going outside and getting daylight exposure that really is helpful for our circadian rhythms mm-hmm. sleep might be disturbed we might be getting exposed to like a lot of blue light in our day like on screens mm-hmm. and stuff like that we might be eating differently like there's so many different variables and I know it sounds like overwhelming to say that oh my gosh all these things like really impact our life but ultimately like supporting that comes down to the basics like Mm -hmm. sleep eat enough for your body don't eat too much don't eat too little and um, move uh, be like a plant you know drink water get exposure to sunlight and then um, and then yeah connect with you know yourself and your and your people whomever those may be like all of those things like Ultimately, that's what it boils everything in health and life boils down to. Yeah, those those key foundations, which, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, sometimes they're some, really hard, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, for sure. Exactly. It's sometimes, yeah, they're, they're not sexy always the foundations, but it, yeah, it can be helpful to do them in, in some, in sort of a concentrated program or with intention or, you know, figure out where the cracks in the foundation might be. Yeah, it's true. I, same with me. My periods get delayed. Um, ovulation for me gets delayed if I'm stressed out or undernourishing, like bam, like it, and um, and so it's kind of nice to have a record of like, for me, it's like 28, 27 day periods, uh, or, you know, cycles. And when I see them like, okay, like things are on track, like it, cause it can fluctuate a lot. So it's a good signal of things being relatively in balance for a run, for a run of time, or at least most days of the month. <laughs> yeah. But I remember like before exams, I would be there. I remember, um, studying for an exam with acupuncture needles in my foot and feet and legs being like, when is my period coming? <laughs> studying <laughs> poked full of pins, just trying to get things moving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good times. <laughs> and um, can we talk? Okay. So let's talk ovulation. Maybe we can start with the context of PCOS. Cause I know it's a focus of yours and that's probably other than pregnancy, menopause, probably the most common reason someone who normally menstruates wouldn't be ovulating, um, would you say, besides taking maybe the pill, which will, or another form of contraception, which we'll talk about. But yeah, like, tell us about PCOS. I don't think we've talked PC. I don't think I've talked PCOS on this podcast. And there are definitely connections with moods, with mood, because it is influencing our hormones. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So um, for anyone listening, I personally have a history of PCOS, as I think I mentioned a couple of times on this uh, episode already, uh, which is why it's so near and dear to me. It is the most common um, disorder that causes anovulatory cycles, especially anovulatory infertility, where you're not ovulating. And that's why you're experiencing the infertility, which makes sense because if you don't, if you're not releasing an egg, there's no egg to be fertilized. So PCOS is not just a hormonal disorder. It's also a metabolic disorder. So most of PCOS, there is an underlying insulin resistance. So I'm sure you've covered insulin resistance in the past on this podcast, Um, (laughs) right? Like insulin resistance basically is when your body is releasing a lot of insulin to keep your blood sugars healthy. We'll kind of leave it at that Mm -hmm. Um, because insulin (laughs) is a key that opens the door to allow glucose to enter your cells from your bloodstream and you need it. Like we need insulin insulin for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when we have too much insulin being released into our system, it's pro-inflammatory, it's pro-clotting. So it it can increase the amount of clotting that we have. It also will uh, increase the production of testosterone in the ovaries. So, uh, and that's part of the pathology of PCOS that we have too much testosterone being released for a variety of different reasons. We also have usually have a lot more inflammation, um, we can have a concomitant thyroid disorder, vitamin D deficiency. So there's like a lot of different facets to PCOS, but the diagnostic criteria would be uh, two out of three of uh, irregular cycles or anovulatory cycles. Um, The second one would be uh, polycystic ovaries. So not having ovarian cysts, but having polycystic ovaries, which means that you have immature follicles in your ovaries, usually over 10 in quantity um, or a larger ovarian volume, which usually indicates that you had polycystic ovaries in the past. Um, And then the third one is signs of hyperandrogenism. So high of those male hormones, that could be DHEA, that could be um, testosterone, 
Uh, that could be on blood work or you could have physical manifestations of it. So hirsutism, so hair growth where, you know, we typically don't want it, hair loss on the head where we don't want it. Um, and then cystic acne, especially like around the cheeks and the jawline and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And you may even have some uh, acne on the chest and on the back. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So like, um, so there's a lot of reasons why ovulation isn't occurring. There's, um, there's the insulin piece, there's the inflammation piece, or it could be, like I said, the concomitant thyroid piece. Um, and then there's that FSH and LH ratio we were talking about at the beginning. Um, what starts to happen is that we have higher LH and then lower FSH in relation to that, which means that our follicles can't really mature appropriately. So all of that leads to anovulatory cycles. So you may still get, you may still ovulate, you may ovulate irregularly depending on what's happening, like what the hormonal milieu is in the body. And then, and you might not be um, ovulating at all. But ovulation is really important. So like just getting back to the basics, ovulation is important because that's how we make progesterone. And progesterone has been like this hormone that we don't particularly talk about too much because like all of the um all of our energy has gone into estrogen and studying estrogen and its relationship in menopause and when we're younger so um i'm going to talk about it mostly from the standpoint of cardiovascular issues and and bone issues because like this is the part we where we have a little bit more clarity around so when we're when we start to menstruate when we're younger the reason why we want to be having ovulatory cycles is because that's when we put on the most amount of bone mass and estrogen is really important for that. But at the same time, progesterone is also important for that because progesterone also supports that. So again, like, like we were saying before, we don't really fully understand um, like the exact specifics of how these hormones work in a lot of cases and even the interaction. But we do know that estrogen plays a key role in bone modeling and laying down our bone when we're young. And then as we age into our uh I think it's our thirties. That's when we reach our peak bone mass. So like Mm -hmm. that's when we have the highest density in our bones. And then after that, it starts to fluctuate a little bit. And if you think about our cycles, so in our cycles, we have estrogen rising in the first half and then we ovulate. So that estrogen dips and then we have estrogen and progesterone in the second half. That's how that usually works. So in the first half of the cycle, our estrogen is allowing us to um, keep our bone mineral density like good. And then when it dips, we actually can lose a little bit of bone mass. And in the second half, progesterone actually works in partnership with estrogen to um, keep our, to, you know, uh, stimulate our bone cells to put down more bone. So it's actually like a synergistic effect that we see. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really important for bone health and our progestin, which we find in like the oral contraceptive, for example, or that, um, or they're also called progestogens. Like you can call them progestogens or progestin, whatever you want to call them. They don't have the same impact. They also don't have the same impact on breast tissue. So estrogen can increase the um, cell growth in our breast tissue. Progesterone, which is the one we make, or if you're taking bioidentical progesterone, mm-hmm. um, that would have confer the same benefits. That actually um, has an opposing effect on estrogen's increase of cell growth in the breast tissue, which is why it's protective. And which is also why as we get into those, um, if we're doing like, progesterone for someone who reached early menopause or is in perimenopause, we do both. Mm -hmm. Um, Not only because, you know, progesterone uh, is important, but 
and opposes estrogen. Like, I guess the main reason is because it also supports estrogen's effects in many, many ways. So like that's cardiovascular risk, that's uh, endometrial risk if you have um, a uterus still, as well as breast tissue. Mm-hmm. And then from a cardiovascular perspective, progesterone actually supports healthy endothelial function. So what that means is that it will make sure that your blood vessels are, are healthy, which, uh, and if we know this, uh, especially by studying a lot of people with primary ovarian insufficiency. So where we reach like early menopause before 45, basically in, in layman's terms, um, we find that progesterone and estrogen together are really important, uh, and progesterone and giving people progesterone again, bioidentical progesterone really helps with, um, maintaining a decreased cardiovascular risk versus those who don't. Mm -hmm. So, so again, like, well, I'm sure we'll have more clarity over time as we do more and more research in different ages of populations and stuff like that. Uh, but so far we know that ovulation is really important for like cardiovascular risk for endothelial function, which also will impact your brain. Like your blood vessels are everywhere. So it impacts pretty much the health of like all your organs and your overall health. Um, and then, and then, yeah, so we, we have to take a look at the estrogen is great. Like having estrogen is great. And people who graduate to menopause, like, they, uh, they lose estrogen, which is, you know, why we have so many higher risk factors for a lot of things afterwards, but progesterone is also important. And the amount of estrogen and progesterone that cycles through our life, uh, menstruating life is actually quite important because all of those cycles confer a benefit later on in life as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's also that. Yeah. Like you mentioned the uterine lining is another example of like how progesterone can oppose estrogen's effects on potentially. Yeah. Um, causing like endometrial hyperplasia, like t- too much um, uterine lining or potential for abnormal growth there. And, and I know we, there's some talk around, well, one of the, how progesterone gets broken down. Um, there's a, another hormone called allopregnenolone that has this sort of calming, almost like a benzodiazepine or a GABA like effect on the brain that can help with sleep. And some of those, when someone's going through perimenopause, a lot of the time they'll experience like restless sleep and, you know, hot flashes and just difficulty with irritability or anxiety and, and, um, progesterone can help with that maybe through that metabolite. But, um, but I think, yeah, you're right. We don't necessarily know how it all plays together and the opposite happens in PMDD, PMDD. They're like more aggravated by progesterone. Maybe that's one of the main theories. Yeah. yeah. And allopregnanolone is one of the mm-hmm. um, compounds that's, you know, sort of deemed as a culprit. Um, right. Right. From what, yeah. our current understanding. So yeah, like progesterone definitely does also help with sleep and decrease that anxiety that people can have in the second half of the cycle. So we, we do, we didn't, we need both is the true answer, right? Like, or not that you asked that question, but like, if we we ask that question, that would be the answer that we we do need both. Obviously, there are situations where we might want to suppress ovulation, for example, in PMDD, like it could be helpful to people to, to, to not be, you know, doing that. Um, And then for contraceptive purposes, obviously, but the guidelines still remain. uh, And this is one of the um, some of the research that I'm looking into more recently or have been looking into more recently is that oral contraceptives are being used earlier and earlier, right? Like in, in adolescence. And that really does impair the peak bone mass that we accrue later on in life. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it impairs that. So 
historically birth control pills were used a little bit later in life, right? Like in, in people's twenties mm-hmm. and now they're being get used younger and younger and younger populations and without a conversation around risk, right? Like if people want to, if parents want to make that decision with their kids, that's ultimately it's their choice, right? Like um, that's fine. And the birth control pill has definitely helped women uh, progress a lot um, just as um in, in general in life and in the world. Um, but we also want to be making sure that we're balancing that converse, that part of the conversation with um, the overall health impacts and, and ultimately also becomes a matter of public health, right? Because then we have higher risk of fractures in the future. We have higher risk of osteoporosis and then managing that in the future. So it definitely is like a pretty significant health issue. And um, I we'll have to see like what more and more research sort of shows on like on the different impacts. If anyone listening wants to like learn a little bit more about the effects of the birth control pill specifically, I really like this is your brain on birth control by Sarah Hill. It's a good book. She's a PhD. Like she researches, she researched, um, like her work revolves around studying the birth control pill and its impacts on, on the brain more specifically, but health in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, that book is a great breakdown on like how it impacted her personally. Mm-hmm. And also like all the sorts of things that the birth control pill can, um, can impact from like your choices in your partners to, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to your digestive function, to your mood and your, your microbiome and all those sorts of things. It's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed that book. I th- thought it was really well written and um, a good resource for a lot of people out there. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That, I'll put that in the show notes because that's always useful to get more in depth look because that's where I wanted to go with this is that, you know, someone with who's, experiencing PCOS. So maybe they're not getting their period or their period is happening regularly. Uh, Maybe they're getting like 60 day cycles, let's say, or somebody who a bit more rare, but not completely like unheard of. Like I've had a few patients who have had POI. So um, ovarian primary, premature ovarian insufficiency, which would be that like the sort of cease of menses before age 45, like you mentioned. Um, both those categories of patients have been just put on the birth control pill to quote, regulate their cycles. And, you know, and one, actually my, one of my patients with POI was told that it was for her bone density, you know, which is arguable as you just said, you know, because that's one of the issues with having menses cease when you're in your, like in her case, she was in her twenties. Um, you know, is that you're, you're don't have the opportunity to lay down the bone density because you're still in that bone building, um, stage of your life. But yeah, so this is where a lot of patients are coming in with, they've been told by their doctors that they're going to regulate their cycles with the pill. And yeah, let's talk about how that's not really doing that. And now that we're knocking the pill, but but yeah, yeah. Why is this not regulating cycles? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm just gonna make one comment on on, mm-hmm. I, and you may have more information on this than I do. I I actually don't have like my knowledge base in the area of like the combined like hormonal birth control pill for mm-hmm. POI. I don't know what the exact research is. Like usually we're doing like bioidentical hormone replacement yeah. therapy. So I don't know what the research yeah. says on like the pill and that. Per- yeah, personally. I couldn't. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. 
Yeah. At, at the time I couldn't find any, I was looking into it and there was, um, it was cost prohibitive to do the proper bioidentical through me, but she was recommended the, the oral contraceptive. So maybe it's changed. It was a f- couple years ago. It wasn't that long ago, but yeah, it, it didn't look like it was supported by research. It was more supported clinically in terms of, I guess, how do you call it? Like biological plausibility where it's like, oh, well, we're going to put the hormones back in your system. Yeah. But what we'll most likely be talking about pretty in depth is that those aren't the same hormones that they're not bioidentical hormones (laughs) and that's what I mean like I don't I'm not like up to date on my research around like birth control pill versus like bioidentical hormones for for those patient populations if someone comes to me I'm putting them on bioidentical hormones like that's just yeah um because I do know that research well Mm -hmm. um and it protects against cardiovascular disease for sure and also like quality of life right so um, going back to PCOS, so that I can speak to very well. <laughs> so yeah. the pill doesn't re- really regulate your cycle, right? It just suppresses it. Like that's really what it's doing. It's suppressing ovulation completely, which means that you don't release an egg. You don't get the cyclical hormone release. So if you ha- if you're someone with PCOS, that doesn't really fix your problem, right? Like it's just ma- you've, you've, we've covered it up so that we don't see it. Like that's really what it's doing. So if you want to use it because if you want to use a pill for contraceptive purposes because you you know you don't know when you're ovulating or if you're ovulating and you just don't want to um, get to the bottom of your PCOS for whatever reason, right? Like people have a lot of different reasons for, for doing that. That That's totally your call. But if you're trying to get to the bottom of your PCOS, a pill's not going to do that. The pill's just going to mask things so that you, you don't see what's happening underneath. Um, because, um, giving you synthetic hormones is not the solution to, to PCOS. It's actually just figuring out what's happening in your body. And oftentimes, like I said, it's the insulin resistance, uh, uh, higher androgen levels, the inflammation, the ovulatory disru- uh, disruption, and that can be for a variety of different reasons, right? Um, that is going to help us get to the bottom of it. And then we can start to shift things. And that's, that's, that's the main thing I do with my PCOS patients, right? Like we're restoring ovulation by working on the underlying uh, pathology that's causing it. Um, the other thing I get a lot is uh, is is um, my PCOS patients will go, especially if they are in larger bodies, um, go lose weight and that will fix your problem, which yes, the research does back weight loss as a, um, you know, therapy, first-line therapy actually to, um, have to restore ovulatory cycles and to help symptoms of PCOS. But usually like people didn't get to that point by not trying, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, there's a lot of metabolic dysfunction that's kind of working against them and has changed their metabolic rate. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these patients sometimes are eating way too little mm-hmm. uh, or not enough of a certain macronutrient, usually cutting out carbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and maybe even going really high fat. And oftentimes that can be saturated fat and that actually in the long run, like ends up worsening things because it can, because mm-hmm. it can worsen fatty liver. It can worsen mm-hmm. insulin resistance. So ultimately it becomes about like restoring ovulation and maintaining, you know, adequacy of your nutrients. And that'll look different for you. That'll look different for me. Um, and the birth control pill is just not it's not going to do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, it just doesn't regulate hormones. It, it gives you synthetic hormones and it gives it to you 
historically, like if we we're using it as uh, listed, it's giving it to you like at a consistent dose on a day-to-day basis. And the bleed that you have, if you're withdrawing those hormones, is a with, it's what we call a pill bleed or a hormone withdrawal bleed. It's not like a menstrual bleed because in order to have a period, you have to have a cycle. Mm-hmm. And in order to have even PMS, technically speaking, you have to have ovulated in order to have like PMS, um, like if we're being like, you know, super technical about it. So you can have PMS like symptoms um, if you're on the pill, for example, and you've taken away those hormones. And a lot of people do experience that, right? Like they, Mm -hmm. they're like, oh yeah, I feel like there's something happening. Um, With an IUD, it looks a little bit different because there's a small percentage of people who completely stop ovulating. Uh, There's some people who there's a large percentage of people. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. we don't know is the honest answer, right? Like we can't, it's, it's hard for us to, to tell how much, but when in research, I think it's around 20 to 25% of people stop ovulating on the IUD. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, if you want to get to the bottom of the PCOS, the pill is really not the option. Uh, it may suppress your testosterone for a little bit. So oftentimes people find that when they come off the pill, they might have actual cycles and then they'll disappear as the testosterone starts regulating again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's yeah. that's what I'll say to that. Yeah, I think it's a good thing to highlight because I don't know if it's, I mean, the work you're doing with period literacy is hopefully helping with this, but I don't think it's a, it's not framed in that way, right? When someone's prescribed the pill for their PCOS or inoculation, they're usually told it's regulating your cycles or, you know, even in an intake, when I talk to a patient who's on um, the pill, whether it be for contraception or for doing some, like treating something hormonal, um, they'll sort of describe what their period is like, like, Oh yeah, my period's like about four days and it's kind of light and it's a little bit cramping. And it's like, it's good. I mean, yeah, that's still useful information. It's still giving me some data. Um, But it's interesting that we, we still think of it as a period. And I definitely, when I have been on the pill in the past, I thought it was a period. I I had no idea that something different was happening in my body. You know, Um, no one had framed it for me in that way. And it might not not have affected my decision to use it because I was using it for various reasons, but it would have just been nice to know what was happening in my body. And, and if I was going to someone because my periods had stopped, I would want to know that they're not bringing my periods back, these pills. They're just allowing me to have the predictability and normalcy of a regular bleed, yeah, for sure. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and, and contraception. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and same here, right? Like, I had irregular cycles, and I was told that this is going to regulate my cycles. Yeah, and it's it's not true, <laughs> right? Like you said, it gives you a predictable pattern mm-hmm. of bleeding. Uh, for a lot of people, like I said, for contraceptives, like. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's it's your call whether we're not trying to like chastise people who mm. use a pill. That's completely up to you. But I think everyone deserves to know like what they're getting into. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like making an informed choice about your health. Ultimately, that choice lies in your hand. Um, but yeah, we're not really given that information. Mm. And unfortunately, in the conventional system, like there's not a, a lot of like a huge ton of options either. Right. Like right. Um, we don't talk about nutrition because nutrition has a huge impact on how how our P- how we experience our PMS and our periods for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, for for majority of the people, right? Like there's 
people on either end of the spectrum who won't benefit as much or who already may have really robust nutrition and still have Mm -hmm. um, issues. But at the same time, like for most of us, um, like all the other things play, play a huge role and, and can be really life-changing, right? Like it definitely changed my life to have regular cycles because as you, I think you earlier mentioned that it gives our body, like it, it's a telling sign that our body's working right. well, right? Like our body's doing this complicated process that presents itself as a menstrual <laughs> cycle. Um, there's a reason why the, uh, I think it's the American it College of Gynecology. I don't know what they're called. Um, <laughs> I think it's, it's them, right, yeah. <laughs> of obst- obstetricians and gynecologists. And they classified it as a, a fifth vital sign for a reason, right? Like because right. It, it gives us information that your body is doing the things it's supposed to be mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, like if you want to use a pill, totally fine. Go in with it with with your information and knowing like why you're using it. But mm-hmm. if you're using it for non-contraceptive purposes, especially like if it's like painful periods or um, irregular periods, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's not going to get to the bottom of those. It's, it's basically going to mask them for, for acne and stuff like that. It can be helpful. It can even mm-hmm. be helpful short term, right? Like I've seen short term um, use of birth control pill and it helps a lot of people and then they come off it and their skin remains clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and some, and mo- but most of the time I would say it comes back right. um, because again, we haven't really changed anything on on the inside, sometimes we actually have made yeah. things worse, right? Like introducing more, um, for example, like gut dysbiosis and micro mm-hmm. microbiome changes, maybe introducing more nutrient deficiencies that are involved in skin cell turnover, like zinc is a big one. Right. So it's even for the hormone processing, which is hilarious because yeah, you need it for like processing hormones in your liver and we yeah, and you literally it. need it for like your cells to divide, right? Yeah, so, right. <laughs> yeah, so so it's it's so interesting like how all of these things work and like off-label uses of so many mm-hmm. medications, especially the birth control pill, right? Like it's like a panacea for any menstrual issue. Yeah, and I, I think the the most of my patients who are considering coming off are the most afraid to come off the pill. And again, I wouldn't advocate for them coming off unless they're sort of in that direction themselves. So let's say that they're sort of like, hey, maybe I want to come off the pill. I've been doing some reading, but I'm really scared my acne will come back. That's sort of the number one thing I hear that people are terrified of because they probably had a horrible experience with um, skin issues. And skin issues can be tough to treat. They can take some time. Um, but like you said, I mean, there are... And I think also, this is the other thing that came to my mind is even the language you 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 were using around PCOS of getting to the bottom of it. I don't know if it's been framed that way for people when they get the diagnosis, right? That there is a bottom to get to. I think, you know, if you're lucky, you might get a lifestyle conversation, which looks like just what you said, lose weight. And how you do so is up to you. It doesn't matter that you've been on Weight Watchers since you were 13 and you're starving, lose weight and have fun. Yeah. I was told that one time by a doctor. Um, she's like, well, eat 1100 calories if 13 is not doing it. And I was like, thank you, (laughs) ma'am. That's good advice. And that's the problem, right? Like that's not going to help your cycles much (laughs) because then your body's like, Hey, survival mode just to get you through the day. And then your cells start hoarding water. And then you think that you're, yeah. And your thyroid's like, Nope, we're going to just tuck her down and wait until this person feeds us till the winter's over. 
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and that's why like a refer, like if you have PCOS, I would definitely get a referral to an endocrinologist because an endocrinologist will at least like test for the blood sugar dysregulation and they may put you on metformin and metformin does help with that, right? Like, because it's decreasing those insulin levels. So that can be helpful for a lot of people. It does improve fertility rates as well. So Mm -hmm. Like, obviously, like, am I advocating that you use metformin? My answer is maybe, maybe you need it. I don't know. Uh, Are there other ways to do that? Especially like that you and I work with. Yeah. Right. Like you work on insulin resistance and blood sugar regulation Mm -hmm. with your patients from so many perspectives, right. For mood, for healthy cortisol levels, for, for everything. Like we need it for everything. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Metabolic health and not just your metabolism, like how fat you, how fast you burn fat, but how everything runs, <laughs> like how yeah. fast your car runs. Yeah. 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 And, and if your car runs well, yeah, exactly. Or, or not. <laughs> and that's, a, that's interesting too. You know, so that's the thing too. It's like getting out of an, un, out of a stuck place. Cause often insulin resistance, the, the, the metabolism is stuck. Right. And so what we're normally told to do, which is lose weight is being impeded by the metabolic resistance. And so what, uh, you know, a typical weight loss strategy would be, which is to exercise more, eat less is probably not going to work. And, um, I think, you know, with more understanding of nutrition and I know you use plant-based diets or, well, maybe don't necessarily use them, but we'll work with them for sure. And you, you did in yourself, but there's like ways and different strategies to, to, I mean, sometimes when someone's dealing with insulin resistance, there's more, um, specific nutrient pro- nutrition protocols that could be useful to help um, get them out of that state, you know? With yeah, the- for sure. And it doesn't necessarily that. mean that you need to keto eat less or ex- and exercise oh, yeah. more yeah. or do keto. Yeah, please. Yeah. I'm like, you know me, like I don't like keto for, for PCS specifically and mm-hmm. keto done. Keto can be done in a variety of different ways. I'm talking about more like the conventional keto where it's like high fat and fat coming from anywhere sort of thing. Right. Right. right? right. Like, like that's what I'm talking about because then we do end up getting a lot of saturated fat mm-hmm. uh, and also low carb at the same time. And if we look at insulin resistance research, like high fiber diets are important and, and, and saturated fats will worsen your insulin signaling. So if you remove carbs short term, it's helpful because there's nothing to, there's not much to raise the insulin level. So we're, the reason why insulin levels go down is because we're avoiding the things that cause insulin to go up. It's not really reversing their insulin resistance, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and that's, that's a key that a lot of, um, people, um, I, I'll say influencers even, or even like doctors that, that they miss is that, yes, our insulin levels have come down, but they've come down because we're not giving it a reason to go up. It's not right. because we've reversed the insulin resistance or the way to reverse the insulin resistance is actually to decrease the body's stress chemistry mm-hmm. and also to have a diet that is actually low in saturated fat, high in mm-hmm. fiber and, you know, vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and all those sorts of things and adequate protein, but also have adequate fat. So that's why it's important to work with someone and not just like, more you know, of it. Yeah. yeah, it has to be, has to be appropriate for you. And, and even like 
yeah, the calories in calories out usually doesn't work as well in in these patients and um, like restrictive dieting just adds more stress chemistry into the mix, right? Mm -hmm. Like your, your body's like, Oh my gosh, what is happening? Plus Mm -hmm. like then the mental health can start to deteriorate because like it feels like you're pushing a boulder up a mountain and yeah. And you just want to like, give up because you go a little bit forward and it just like rolls back onto you yeah so i think yeah like more of the like um menstruating hormones don't always respond to like keto and intermittent fasting in the way that non-menstruating hormones do or like the more like testosterone dominant or like male hormones um yeah because our menstruation is impacted by that stress signal which is ultimately that there's a food shortage (laughs) And I think when they like divide it up and they look at just like female rats, um, they see actually worse in insulin resistance from doing intermittent fasting and um, deeper intermittent fasting, like not necessarily like 12 hours of giving your digestive system a break type thing. But when you're starting to do more like one meal a day type stuff, it was worsening the insulin resistance of the rats. And, you know, I lost my period when I was experimenting with keto and intermittent fasting. I didn't get my period for a few months. It was really, it sucked, lost a lot of hair. Up front, it was great. And then a few months down the line, it was completely, completely backfired. And you're right. I've heard it as like, almost like the carb. So if there's like a wood burning stove, which would be like the insulin resistance, it's kind of opposite. It's not really burning anything, but there's, let's say there's like a wood burning stove. This is the insulin resistance carbs may be feeding the stove or like sugar or fructose. So you see, yeah, like some of the signs like insulin go up and you see that it's difficult for the person to metabolize the carbs, but it's not causing the fire to burn. You have to, you know, put out the fire and, and then you, you know, the carbs are fine. And so it's not about like, yeah, I've had a few patients, um, they can't really, they're, they're like type two diabetes. Um, they can't really tolerate higher carb diets, but it's difficult to, we're still in the process of regulating their insulin sensitivity. So it's like a very, like you said, complex trying to understand exactly what the, how the pieces fit together and how to shift that person. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And then if it's someone's had insulin resistance for a long time, or even mm. if they're diabetic, like the likelihood of fatty liver in that person also increases exponentially. And then the mm-hmm. fatty liver liver will worsen insulin mm. sensitivity or insulin will worsen insulin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And vice versa, mm-hmm. right? Because insulin plays a key role in how our liver deposits yeah. um, energy. And, um, and, and yeah, so like, it's, it's a definitely a compl- it's not like as simple as saying something, right? Like, this is what everyone should do. <laughs> yeah. It's more like what is happening in your body? How did we get here? And how do we now start to work on and work unravel on unravel it? That? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, like a hashtag doesn't unravel your specific <laughs> issue. <laughs> like sometimes you, you stumble upon it, you know, I don't know, but it's rare because I find that with any diet, which essentially is like defined by food rules, you can, you can, well, I can like shape shift my way into eating whatever I want and just make it whatever the rule is, you know? So it's like, you got it. I think we were saying before we started recording, recording, we're like, you know, general diet advice or nutrition advice, a good thing to say would be like, well, start cooking your own food or most of your own food, but that's not sexy advice. And, (laughs) you know, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, but um, let's, can we, okay, the last thing, or one of the last things is, um, yeah, the pill, maybe some comments on the pill and mood in general. I know there has been, a, there's some conflicting data, at least from what I was reading, but there was a big study, a Danish study, that looked at the risk of people who were taking um, oral contraceptives and various types, and then they're the likelihood that they then later started to take an antidepressant and there was an increased um, connect like correlation. Um, And the conclusion was that it might increase the risk of depression. Um, And some people have had that experience, I think, but I don't know if it's cut and dry in someone's experience. I don't know if they're like, some people will say that they'll be like, when I started the pill, it made me crazy, you know, or certain kinds, but not everybody um, has the opportunity to put that together. It's not as obvious in everyone, um, or may not be a factor in everyone, but yeah. What have you seen or yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll preface this by saying that I probably see a little bit more of a skewed population, right? Like I usually am seeing patients who want to get to the bottom of things or they've had, mm-hmm. uh, I see more of the patients who have had adverse reactions to the pill or some medication that they've been on and they're looking for an alternative. So it's from a clinical perspective, it's a little bit hard to to not be biased just because that's just a skewed population. But if we look at research, uh, and again, like I'll refer uh, people to Sarah Hill's uh, book, uh, The Braid on Birth Control Pill, because this is like the foundation of what she covers. Like this is the most, like the meat of what she covers. Um, and the the sort of thing that really sticks out from, from her book for me is that the cortisol response. So if we take non-pill taking um, menstruators, and this was done in women, so I'm just going to say women. If we take non-pill taking women and pill taking women, the pill taking women had more blunted cortisol responses, as in they didn't fluctuate as much, which means that they didn't get as excited either. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the you know non-pill pill taking women, they had like huger fluctuations to different stimuli in their lives, which is you know what you would expect, right? Like if something exciting happens, you get excited, or something makes you really anxious, you get anxious, and then it, they fall back down to sort of baseline levels. So that's one of the things that really sticks out to me from that. Personally, um, definitely mood tanked. Like my mood was already low going in because, you know, PCOS does increase the likelihood uh, that you have sort of mood dysregulation or even like an outright mood disorder. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I definitely fell in that category where my mood was just like not that great. Mm-hmm. Um, more the, low than anything, and then it were and it worsened um, right. when I when I started the pill. So I do see a lot of it in my practice. Um, even if we look at you know um, a lot of the studies do have a correlation there, and <clears throat> it's because like again like those hormones are not exactly the same as the hormones that we make, which means that the interactions with the other systems are not exactly the same as the hormones that we would make. Um, Estrogen typically does have more of like this boosting, lifting effect. Progesterone has this calming effect. Um, So, and um, those are like, I'm talking about bioidentical, like the hormones that we would make naturally and progestins and um, the different estradiols and estrogens that are synthetic. They don't typically, they don't tend to have the same impacts. And even within that, we have to take into account like the differential sensitivity, right? Like we all respond a little bit differently. Some people feel great on the pill, like 
wonderful. A lot of people experience uh, depression. A lot of people experience a lack of libido, um, right? A lack of libido is a big one that comes up because again, like those uh, estrogen receptors have changed uh, or like the estrogen activity has changed. And then for some people, it's like pill dependent. So if they go on one, they might feel really crummy and then they go on a different one with a different sort of profile of hormones and that can be helpful. Mm -hmm. So if you are someone who experiences low mood, it's it's worth it to come off it. And you can either do a trial of without anything and see how that mood changes. Usually in that case, you still want to be um, supporting your body a little bit because the other component of that is the pill also introduces some some nutrient deficiencies, which are really important for mood support, like magnesium, like our B vitamins, our zinc and all those sorts of things. And sometimes, honestly, like I give a B complex to my pill taking patients who are like really low in energy and that solves all their problems, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's Mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes not all the time, most of the time not, but sometimes um, it's as simple as that, right? Like we look at what they're eating and I'm like, "Mm, there's probably not enough B vitamins going in here. Plus like you're on the pill. So maybe we need to add that in. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I was making a point earlier that I've forgotten, <laughs> but, um, um, yeah. So like, if you are someone who experiences that, it might be worth it to come off it and do a trial. And then the other option is that you could, uh, if, if, especially for contraceptive purposes, if you're on it or for whatever other reason, then you can just try switching to a different one. And that may, may be helpful, but still working with someone who will sort of support you with some of the mm-hmm. deficiencies that can exist. Cause those aren't really going to mm-hmm. go anywhere. And, there's definitely a higher risk of yeast infections when you're on um, the pill and yeast infections means gut dysbiosis. Gut dysbiosis means change in neurotransmitters, right? Mm-hmm. Like serotonin. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, yeah. So like so much going on yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, totally. as always. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, uh, it, it looks different for different people. Some people feel wonderful. Some people feel kind of in the middle. Some people feel awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like most, things I think. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, yeah, essentially it's affecting every system in some way and differently than our own hormones. And so just as complicated as our own hormones can be, the effects of the contraception can be. And then there's also different kinds of um, progestins, like different chemical constituents that would include, that would be covered under the term progestin. So some people, exactly. like you said, react to some, but not others. Yeah. Yeah. And then they can bind to different receptors than your progesterone receptors, right? Like, and if they're yeah. react and they're attaching to different receptors, then that's going to create a cascade re- of a response of some kind. So, um, and don't ask me about them because, um, <laughs> because I don't remember a lot of them, but, but it's, it's a different impact that it can have. And, and like, to your point that you just made, our hormones are interacting with so many systems, right? Like, and so it's, it's not just like it has a cause and an effect or mm-hmm. it doesn't even have side effects. It's just the effects of the pill. We just classify them as side effects because they're not the effects we're looking for. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. Exa- yeah. It's, it's, yeah. There are no side effects, just effects <laughs> unwanted and wanted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is great. Thank you. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know, kind of short of time, but there's also a possibility of like talking to an ND about there are other forms of contraception that may be non-hormone related. Now, it's not going to be a good fit for everyone's lifestyle and preference, but it's sometimes nice to know that there are like other things to consider if the if the pill or an IUD or something isn't working for someone and um, 
Yeah, yeah for sure. Like yeah. tracking, like mm-hmm. you we're yeah. all like big proponents of tracking, right? Like tracking your cycle, seeing what your patterns are, when you're releasing <clears throat> cervical mucus and using barrier methods. Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, when you co- when you use them combined, like they have the same efficacy rate as yeah. the, the pill, right? But it does require like us to be body literate and period literate and it requires us to uh, which we don't get in our education system right like we don't we we don't really learn much about our bodies which is such a shortcoming of our education system is and it's unfortunate because it impacts us our whole life yeah exactly I always laugh about this but also like I'm very serious about it we learn how to calculate the hypotenuse of a triangle so many times but like we cannot like I still remember right a squared plus b squared equals c squared right yeah. like you remember the Pythagorean theorem but like um if, if you ask people about their cycles like they barely know anything yeah totally yeah, yeah. well it's because triangles are not like triangles are cool real things in nature yeah like a <laughs> triangle is like um we've yeah it's it's yeah it's an it's a it's a is it a simple math equation i don't know a squared plus b squared. it's let's see it's squared. yeah it's a lot easier yeah <laughs> a little bit easier than like the the algorithm and calculus of your progesterone this is like total aside but i was uh, reading about the hba axis and they did a mathematical model on cortisol and the HPA access to understand what would happen if it was sort of stuck in the adrenal fatigue or HPA access dysfunction. And they were like describing the limitations of this math model. They're like, well, we didn't take into consideration receptor sensitivity and breakdown and it was already super complicated. So it's, yeah, I think our hormones are more like high level calculus requiring AI and even then it can't do it all. So yeah. It's so true. Like it's, um, and it's super cool, right? Like when I, when I think about it, I'm like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm a period nerd. So like, and I, and I know you are too, like a body nerd. Like we both are so fascinated by the body. <laughs> yeah. Like there's, there's so much going on all the time and it's so cool, but it's also sometimes overwhelming. Like I personally just keep learning and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's still so much to learn, like just from the yeah. current evidence that we have. And then we continue to build on that. Yeah. So it's, it's super interesting. And I definitely recommend like having a good healthcare team behind you. Mm-hmm. That's that, ha- that can provide you with a little bit of education as well. Right. And, and that's why I, I know we love doing what we do because yeah. we're also able to educate around like what's happening in the body. Like it doesn't have to be like super complex or anything, mm-hmm. but at least starting to pay um, to kind of draw help patients draw connections. Right. Like if your gut is off, then your mood part of your mood disturbance can be coming from there and vice versa, right? And that's kind of how the body works. When one system starts to shift, it impacts the other system and that system will also impact that system, but multiple more. Right. So, yeah. So it's, it's sometimes even like when we present a treatment plan, it's like, okay, take some X, Y, Z. And it seems really simplistic, but we have that background in our mind, right? Like we may not have all the pieces because like, we don't know all the pieces, but like to the best of our knowledge, like that's how things piece together. And, and that's what we're presenting people with. So that's why it's really important to kind of take, um, um, 
different opinions and like different teachings as, as you're doing that and getting like a better idea of what's happening in your body. And one of the best things that people can do is really pay attention to what's happening in their body so that they can relay that more clearly and be more specific. So we can understand it a little bit better, right? Like when patients come in and they're like, well, my sleep's off sometimes, but it's fine sometimes. And I'm like, okay, let's track that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, is it in the second half of your cycle that we're um, seeing that sleep disturbance? Cause maybe it's, you know, and a relative issue of estrogen versus progesterone, or maybe it's because like, like we're eating differently in the second half of our cycle because our, our appetite has changed or we're trying to like drink more coffee to compensate for low energy or whatever the case may be. Right. Mm-hmm. So then we can start to pinpoint. Sometimes it's really simple, right? Like sometimes it's as simple as saying, Hey, let's cut out that second cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and sometimes it's a little bit more fancy, like, okay, let's give you some progesterone in the second half of your cycle. Like it looks different for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you said, like, I mean, anyone can sort of move a chess piece but it's like, but why? Like, what's the strategy behind it? What's the understanding behind it? I think that's so yeah. treatment plan could, you know, seem like, oh, take some B vitamins and that solves their problem. But you're, but I have a, a background. There's a behind the scenes thing happening where I'm recommending this that makes it seem like it's something you could have just grabbed from shoppers, but I'm, I, I'm moving my night up two squares and diagonal one because of I have a plan. Yeah. Yeah. Because in, in, in in six moves, I'm going to get to the queen. I'm going to get to check. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm not just like randomly (laughs) knocking them around. Yeah. All right. And thank you so much. This was so great. I'm going to have links to the waiting list for your program. I know you've already started it by the time this is out. Um, you're another round of it and then people can follow you and check you out because you're, you're in the process of writing a book. And maybe this, yeah, this will like provide the squeeze to get it out there. So, you know, you're like, I've declared it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I know I've been a little bit quiet about it because <laughs> the writing process is, it's an interesting one. Like I've learned so much as I even, like even between last year and this year, I feel like as I've written it and I've, you know, when you try to communicate things, like things mm-hmm. fall into place a little bit differently. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely happened. And then the more I, I write, the more I realize I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much I don't know. Um, yeah. But at the same time, trying to celebrate, okay, I do know some stuff, you know what I mean? So it's, it's an interesting, like sort of push and pull. That's my, that's my fear. It's like, I'm going to say something and be like, is that even right? And then go down a rabbit hole that lasts two weeks to just reiterate a statement that I already made. Cause I knew because I learned it a few years ago and forgot where the reference was. So I'm sure you're in that loop. Yeah, There's definitely done that multiple times. Loops, yeah. <laughs> you're like stuck in an interdimensional time loop of like, yeah, but that's, yeah. that's cool. I mean, it, yeah. At least it's about periods, so not taxes or something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah no, do, yeah. do not take tax advice from me, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A period advice, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, Anne, thank you so much. Thank you. Nice chatting with you.